It's our practice, though, here at Hope that uh, if you, you you would like to be in the service, if um, you'd like to have your children in the services, there's no better place to learn how to worship than there is here uh, in the sanctuary. Uh, turn with me then to Acts 22. That's page uh, 1,184 if you're using Blue Church Bibles. If the uh, if the back and forth with Paul here is a little chaotic in your mind, I think you could be forgiven for that. Uh, this is a chaotic situation. Paul's had to defend himself before the Jews and then before the Romans, and then again before the Jews, and then again before the Romans. And uh, uh, it's as though they're just kind of playing musical chairs with the apostles' life. The context here is that Paul's presence in the temple, because the gospel that he preaches is a gospel of grace for all, Jew or Gentile, that would repent and trust in Jesus, Paul's mere presence in the temple unsettled people. Uh, they said that Paul was teaching against the temple. If you, could, if you could be forgiven simply because of Jesus Christ and what he's done on your behalf, well, then Paul then was saying, you don't need the temple. And so here's Paul at the temple and the people at the temple are saying, you're preaching against the temple because you're saying the temple and a lot of the ceremonial laws are just so completely unnecessary. And if you're against the temple, then you're against God's covenant law. And if you're against God's covenant law, you're against God's covenant people. And if you're against God's covenant people, you're against God. So so this is the thinking of those who are angry with Paul at the temple. And the crowd then quickly turns into a mob. And with the mob, it becomes hostile. And somebody then calls the cops. Somebody calls for the Roman guard. And they are led by a tri- tribune, uh, a leader of the Roman guard named Claudius Lysias. Uh, you don't see that listed in the text we're about to read, but he's ultimately listed down Uh, at verse 26 of chapter 23. That's how we know his name. Claudius Lysias initially initially has Paul picked up from the bottom of the pile and put into the barracks that are outside the temple. The Roman guard has 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 a barracks right outside the temple to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Brings him outside, uh, lest those in the temple beat Paul to death. So so he, he's got Paul in protective custody just so the crowd didn't pull Paul limb from limb. Paul then asks if he can address the crowd uh, uh, that was just trying to kill him moments earlier and clear some things up. Claudius Lysias says yes, but things blow up yet again when Paul comes right out and says it. Jesus, Paul says, this Jesus that he claims is the long-promised Jewish Messiah, called upon him to take the good news to the Gentiles. And boom, once again, the crowd explodes. Paul's claiming that Messiah wants Jews to hang out with unclean people. More than that, unclean Gentiles can be saved without the temple. So they say, effectively, Paul, you should be wiped off the face of the earth. And that's where we pick up the action here. Chapter 22, verse 22. Here now is the reading of God's word. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, 
the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, Why, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, um, there's so much going on in this passage, so much action, uh, words, conflict, violence even, uh, a a human being at at risk of being torn apart. Give us understanding about what you would want us to know about this passage. Open our hearts, Lord. Overwhelm our our sin and our frailty, um, our, our, our lack of wisdom, to show us what it is you would uh, want us to know so that you would um, make us wise. More than that, make us into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This morning we're just going to look at at Paul's citizenship. That comes forward when he talks about being a citizen of Rome. Uh, Paul's conflict in the church 
there's a conflict between people at the temple. Paul's a Pharisee. Pharisees and Sadducees are having conflict. Paul's sort of one of them, but he's sort of not. And Paul's courage in the midst of discouragement. Paul's citizenship, Paul's conflict, Paul's courage. And obviously, what we're trying to do here is to get to understanding our citizenship, how we're to do conflict, and of course, how we're to find courage. Okay? So let's look at each of those. Paul's citizenship first. One of the most famous cases in ancient Roman law was brought by a young upstart attorney named Cicero, very famous, Cicero, against a rich aristocratic governor named Gaius Verres. Now, Verres, like many Roman aristocrats of his day, had discovered how to play the Roman system of democracy for his own advantage. Of course, you had to play the game. You had to move up the ranks a bit. You had to go through uh, the motions of being elected to various offices of state, You were a quester, and then you were a praetor, and then you were a proconsul, and so on. Uh, No problem there, because if, if, if like Gaius Verres, you're rich, you have friends in high places, there are ways that you can grease the system, you can manipulate things, you can get sort of the fix in, if you will, to, uh, to be installed almost into one of those roles. If you had enough money and power, Pressure could even be brought to bear that when election time came, you could pay off anyone who would want to run against you. And it's easy to win office when there's no one running against you. And, and, and Gaius Ferez was very good at these things. Now you could ask, why would somebody so rich, so rich as Gaius Ferez, even need to be a public service? And uh, the answer is a very contemporary one. Uh, you can go into public service and get even richer. <laughs> and uh, some governors, of course, did their best to rule their respective provinces with a measure of justice and of wisdom. In fact, by Paul's day, by Paul's day, uh, here in our text, things had improved a lot, specifically because of what happened with this man Gaius Verres some years earlier. But earlier in the first century, before Jesus, it was common practice for provincial governors to do on a massive scale what tax collectors did on a small scale, and that is profit themselves by extortion. And uh, this particular governor, Gaius Perez, went about it with a systematic ruthlessness. He was the proconsul, he was the governor in Sicily, and uh, he did whatever he liked. He not only imposed heavy financial taxes uh, on all the citizens, but he took estates by public domain. He had so many houses, he would just walk up to your house and say, mine. And uh, if, if you fought back and said, no, it's mine, <laughs> he had Roman guard with him. And they would make sure that guys for us, they were well paid. There was, a, you know, they, the, the, from the graft he had, he could pay his, uh, his soldiers very well. They would just take the house from you. He was very well known for stripping art treasures from people that he knew. Uh, you never wanted to let Gaius Ferez visit your house because he might see something he liked and just walk out with it. Um, sh- whole shiploads, it were said, of, of loot was sent back to his main home, which was back in Rome. He didn't really like being in Sicily. He just took everything out of Sicily and took it back to Rome. And uh, when people really would fight back against him a couple of times, he 
uh, took things from ex-Roman soldiers who wanted to fight back. Uh, They famously disappeared. (laughs) Uh, So finally, finally, a bunch of people got together and said, this has to stop. This has to end. So they go to a young lawyer, this man named Cicero, and they say, we need you. We need you to prosecute this guy. And of course, Cicero that, is, that is very worried himself. Process. Family this should not he happen. Worried about what would happen to them. But he of this country, you can't just hold what you want. Under his skin, in such, such a way, that by the time this situation comes along, and the crucial is a point in the prosecution, for the point in the prosecution where even Gaius's Gaius Perez's well-paid friends, by the way, ultimately years later, was that when one person didn't do what he said, he had him. He went off into hiding. And later uh, on, when Perez, famously, Mark there were Anthony a lot of witnesses found him. That when Perez and took this what man, Mark Anthony did and, uh, was, by first power had without him, due process, scourged or flogged, stripped all of Gaius and then uh, taken to a cross and took him for himself. And while he was hanging so across, this stuff never goes away. away. <laughs> this man kept saying, well, over here and over at again, the end of Acts 22, I am a you Roman citizen. Claudius I am a Roman citizen. Scratching his helmet. And people watch this. What am I supposed to do? He has on his hand this inner Jewish squabble going on that is hard for him to understand. He doesn't have a lot of interest in the whole thing personally, uh, but he's responsible for keeping the peace in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a part of the Roman Empire at this point. He's got to keep the peace. And it's not practical for him to sit down and meet with every member of the mob. So it's easier to do it with one person. So he, he goes with standard operating procedure when you're dealing with somebody who is not a Roman citizen, you get the scourge out. Right? Now, a scourge is like a, a piece of wood, a stick, that's about as long as, as a ruler, about 12 inches long. And then nailed to one end of it are 10 or 12 strips of leather. And then tied at the end of each of those strips is, uh, is a piece of lead, something like the weight of a ball bearing. And, and that's what you use to scourge someone. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-fingered whip, you see. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, you know, the, the tribune's thinking, I'm going to find out what Paul knows about this whole situation, and I'm going to u- use the whip to find it out. And it would, it leaves deep scars. Sometimes it breaks bones if, if the scourging goes on, shatters rib cages. Sometimes it led to paralysis and even death. Uh, scourging, as you know, was done to our Lord at the end of his trial, and it made the back of Jesus so raw that famously he could not carry his cross. Now, the difference is that Jesus did not try to get out of his scourging, we're told, because his mission was to die. Not because God is a sadist, but because Jesus determined, uh, remember, to lay down his life of his own accord. But Paul's mission is to live. Now, he knows that bad stuff might happen to him in Jerusalem. He's aware of this. People predicted it. Paul seemed to already know when he was told and even illustrated to him, this is what's going to happen to you when you go into Jerusalem. He knew that, but he wants to live as long as he can to preach the gospel. Um, and, and in addition, Paul has something that Jesus did not, and that is Paul was a Roman citizen. And with a clear head, Paul doesn't scream, he doesn't rage, he doesn't, he doesn't cry out. Verse 25, Paul asks 
the person who's about to scourge him, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And in that moment, the person who's about to do it freezes. Because if you did do this, the, 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 the same thing would happen to you. Scourge someone who's not a citizen and you get scourged. Uh, so Paul's saying, I haven't, I'm a Roman citizen, haven't had due process. In fact, at this point in the process that Paul is actually in, a Roman citizen couldn't even be bound up at this point. Couldn't be tied up. So you couldn't be bound or, or beaten without the benefit of trial. Now, I want to pause the narrative just right there um, to apply this because you and I, you and I can find ourselves in a situation where we have to think something like this through biblically. Uh, uh, not everyone, of course, Jesus again is called to die. Just because Jesus went through a scourging doesn't mean that you have to go through a scourging. Uh, I don't mean, of course, that you need to prepare yourself for a moment when you might be scourged, but the force of those who don't like the gospel and want to silence people who believe and share it, that's what Christians are, after all, supposed to do. We're supposed to, to share the gospel with others. Is becoming harder to do all the time. Now, when I make these comparisons, when I talk about such things, I always feel like uh, uh, there's a pressure on me to give you illustrations from this very week. If I can't give you an illustration for what I'm about to say now, then, then it just kind of it feels ephemeral to, to me. But So this very week in the Netherlands, there is a discussion about whether pastors in the Netherlands who affirm biblical Christianity on issues of gender and sexuality in particular should face criminal prosecution. So some of you know that a couple of years ago there was a statement that came out called the Nashville Statement. I'm not going to get into exactly what it said. You can find it online. It's basically what, in, in uh, uh, certainly imperfect language, uh, what the Bible has taught for 2,000 years on issues of gender and sexuality. Um, uh, these pastors in the Netherlands decided, we want to sign it too. 250 of them signed it. And uh, the issue that's happening in the Netherlands just this lack, last week is, should they all be prosecuted? Should they be put to jail? You see, Which would have functionally end all those churches, or they'd have to find another pastor, but the next pastor's not going to want to teach what the, put the last pastor in jail if they're prosecuted. That's just from last week. Now you say, well, that's the Netherlands. It can't have anything to do with Christians uh, where we are. But, of course, it can. Here in the United States, also this past week, a couple of uh, senators have been trying to block a federal judicial nominee simply because he's a member of a historic Catholic organization, which, brace yourself, is Catholic. <laughs> you know, what a shock. Um, so this, uh, this judicial nominee is a member of the Knights of Columbus. Now, when I was a kid, the Knights of Columbus was about as boring as the Elks and the Welcome Wagon. Uh, it held, you know, it, it held no fascination for me at all. I wasn't Catholic, but but uh, I wouldn't even want the Protestant version of it, you know. The, the, uh, so, but today, it's extreme. That's the word that was used. That that's an extreme organization. So so things can change. You see, now that's not scourging. <laughs> right to to not be able to become a federal judge because you're a member of a Catholic organization. It's not scourging to be potentially prosecuted in the Netherlands, um, though it might take your 
um, uh, the way you feed your family away from you. But it still presses you, if this is you, to think about what would you do? What would you do if it was you in your workplace or on your job or whatever? Paul gives us guidance, gives us guidance. Paul has no problem using the tools of logic, of justice, of the state, of common sense to make an argument. It is, we can take away from this text, okay to fight this sort of thing. Now, I know there's the idea in in, in the Bible of turning the other cheek. Uh, But that's for when the witness of the gospel is expressly involved. In that circumstance, you do not use violence to defend the gospel because the gospel's lost when you use violence to defend the gospel. But it says nothing about the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of governments in exercising the power of the sword so that to defend yourself and keep yourself alive so that you can live out the gospel, yes, call on the state. Use the justice system of the land that you are in, of which you are a citizen, whether it's the United States, whether it's the Netherlands, whether it's some other place. But the balance, the balance is this. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Hmm? Our citizenship is is in heaven. Ultimately, that is where our hope is. That is where real and ultimate justice will be found. Paul will trot out his Roman citizenship to stop a beating. But, but if Claudius Lysias, if a Pharisee that's there, if a, if a Sadducee, if, if someone who's a part of the Sanhedrin says, Paul, where is your real citizenship? Paul says, it's in heaven. It's in heaven. Our ruler, Paul would say, is more just, is more holy, is, is wiser and fairer than any national ruler. Uh, we as Christians should apply this to ourselves. The laws of our king are more just and more righteous. If I have to choose between one or another, I choose the kingdom of God. See, Our nation's dominion is just a country. Uh, but over the whole earth and over all creation stands our God. It's why uh, here at Hope Presbyterian Church, we do not have a flag in the sanctuary. Because that flag, when you pledge allegiance to the flag, says that, that you're to, in a sense, bow to it. You pledge your allegiance to it. But what happens at a time when your country does things that are in contradistinction to the word of God? No, in, in here, as people who honor Christ, we bow our knee only to Jesus, only to King Jesus. We're citizens of the United States, many of us. Some of us are not, though. But we're heading toward the place as believers where we all have our citizenship, which is in heaven. That has to come first. So these things have to be held in balance. Held in balance. Second, conflict in the church. The scene then ultimately shifts Claudius Lysias still wants answers. He can't, okay, I can't scourge Paul. That was, rats, that's a quick and easy way to get answers. When I pull that scourge out, people start talking. <laughs> but now I can't use that method. 
So um, he takes the cuffs off of Paul and commands the chief priests and the council to meet in front of him. He sets Paul down in front of them, the entire Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the, the 70. So just imagine 70 of these, uh, these men filing in. This isn't a trial. The trial's going to happen when we get to Acts 24 uh, in front of Felix. Um, uh, uh, but, but this is something kind of like a, imagine a, a pre-trial hearing. It's kind of like that. Claudius Lysias still isn't sure whether Paul has breached one of the laws of Rome, whether a breach of the laws actually occurred. So he's trying to find this out. Paul begins by professing his innocence. Uh, this is chapter now 20, 23, verse 1. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, I want you to know that testifying to a good conscience is not saying, I am sinless. That's not what Paul means. No, having a good conscience is saying, I serve the Lord to the best of my knowledge. I serve the Lord to the best of my ability, which includes, by the way, seeking forgiveness when Paul has sinned and seeking uh, God's holiness more and more when you realize that you are a, a, a sinner. And the passage gives you an immediate example of this, of having a good conscience, because no sooner does Paul say this than Ananias has Paul struck on the mouth and Paul then responds sinfully. Paul responds sinfully. Now here's how it goes. Paul gets struck on the mouth. This is an unlawful thing to do, first of all. This uh, violates Deuteronomy 25, where you can't strike a man until you've uh, proved that he's, he's guilty in a court of law. And uh, Paul's guilt hasn't yet been established. So they strike Paul because, of course, they never want the gospel to come out of his mouth, and they've judged him guilty beforehand. But that's on them. Okay? That's on them. But notice the difference here. <clears throat> Even though this is, again, before Claudius Lysias, this is, this is an intramural conflict. This is a conflict, if you will, in, 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 it's, it's not exact, but in the church. Okay? In the church. Now, I'm not saying by this way that the Sanhedrin are believers in Jesus, but they are supposed to be followers of God's law. And it's in this context that Paul fails to follow the meek and humble example of the Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus too was struck by the Sanhedrin in John 18, and Jesus simply asked, hey, did I do something wrong? Did I, did I say something wrong? Did I say something was false? Paul, though, he lashes out. Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed wall. Uh, sort of like in Matthew 23, when Jesus calls the teachers of the law whitewashed tombs. You look outwardly clean, but there's hypocrisy here. You've made yourself look clean, but on the inside, there is sickness, there's, there's, there's death, right? There's unbelief. There's thinking you're important, more important than God. Uh, you heard Robbie read from Ezekiel. It's the same idea there. The leaders are saying sweet things like peace, peace, when they should be calling the people to repent in Ezekiel. Uh, and, and, and so they're hypocrites, and that's what whitewashing is always all about. It's, it's about hypocrisy. Well, Paul does this. He calls the high priest a hypocrite and suggests that he be struck. So he's broken the fifth commandment. But Paul repents. 
he's supposed to respect not only his mother and father, but as the old catechism says, also those who are in high places of authority. Um, One commentator says that this might be the only place in the entire New Testament where we see the great apostle Paul repenting of sin. Now, of course, uh, Paul, Paul, Paul sinned in thought, word, and deed all the time. Uh, you know, he famously says in, in, in Romans 7, you know, the very thing that I want to do, I find that I don't do. And the thing that I, I, I do do, I know I shouldn't be doing it because the, the, the evil one's right there with me all the time. And so he's struggling with sin all the time. Uh, uh, and so here Paul goes against his own proclamation. First Corinthians 4, Paul says, when reviled, we bless. Not today. <laughs> right? uh, when persecuted, we endure. Uh, not today. You know, when slandered, uh, it says in, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, we answer kindly. Not today. <clears throat> now, this kind of thing, by the way, happens more than, than we think. Um, we've got to apply this uh, again to us before we go to our, our last point. Uh, you can have people in the church, sad to say, you can have leaders in the church. Sometimes, I've seen it, some of you have been in churches like this, where even a, a pastor has gotten into a pastoral role and they're actually not believers. Or they don't live as believers. You start to question whether they are believers. And you can get confronted by your sin by somebody that you think is a lost person. Somebody who's not saved. Who's unregenerate. It doesn't matter whether they're merely wrong or they aren't regenerate. If they're an officer of the church, you can't just dismiss them. You can't just dismiss them. I want you to think about this. If they are your parent and you think that your parent is ruling unjustly, you you might want to push back, you might want to argue, you might want to show them God's word, but you can't just dismiss them. I want you to think think about David with Saul for a moment. Saul is just acting, behaving as, a, as an unbeliever 24-7. And David doesn't like it. It's clear that, that Saul is unjust, but David honors him as the Lord's anointed, even though Saul is wrong. Here is the Apostle Paul. Now, he's not saying, by the way, oh, you guys are totally right. They don't, they don't, they're not. They don't know who Messiah is. They're not right. But he looks at himself. He looks at his own behavior and he repents. And he, Paul repents to unbelievers. Now, again, we have to apply this. Some of you here might be, let's say, in a, in a, in a roommate situation. Some of you here might be in a, in, a, in a marriage where you're married to an unbeliever. It is so powerful to repent of your wrongs when you're in an argument, when you're in a conflict for your wrongs, even if the other person is stubborn and won't repent of their own. It can be a powerful thing to repent to somebody who does not yet know Jesus. I've seen people win their parents over to the gospel by going to their parents to repent. And by the way, if you do it, do it like Paul does Use it as an opportunity to share scripture. You can almost, I'm putting Paul in the new David translation here. Rats, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. 
You know, the Bible says you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He quotes scripture. I was wrong. Let me show you where I was wrong in my Bible. Exodus 22. Not supposed to do that. Mom, dad, wife, roommate, I sinned against you. The Bible tells me I shouldn't. I'm sorry. I ought not have done that. Friends, we can't give those who are enemies of the gospel a reason to hate God uh, and the gospel because we won't repent. No, repent because you have been forgiven. That's how you deal with conflict. That's how you deal with conflict. Lastly, courage. Courage. Courage in a moment of discouragement. Well, Paul goes on to address the Sanhedrin. And um, it's kind of like our Congress, the Sanhedrin, in the sense that it's a two-party system. It's a two-party system. There are the, we, we might call them the theological liberals, we might call them the, the mainline believers, uh, the Sadducees. Okay? They, did, they did not believe in the bodily resurrection. They are, uh, the Sadducees are anti-supernaturalists. Um, uh, no angels, no spirits, nothing like that. And then over here, we have the, the conservatives. We might, maybe the, we could call this the, the, the Pharisees, they're the pietistic fundamentalists. Uh, they did believe in the resurrection, uh, a resurrection, we should say, not the resurrection, but they believed in a resurrection. They believed in angels. Uh, they would have believed in uh, what we might call the inerrancy of scripture. Now, the interesting thing here isn't that Paul chooses one side over the other by saying, well, I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. That's not the interesting thing here. No, what's interesting is that these two parties have disagreed over this stuff for generations. This is not a new argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This has been going on for years and years and years. What's interesting here is, why is today the day that this becomes so violent? Do you see that? Verse 7, dissension arose. The assembly was divided. They've been divided over this for years. Verse 9, a great clamor arose. They contended sharply. Verse 10, the dissension became violent. The tribune was afraid that Paul would be torn piece from piece. Why now, after generations of arguing over this, did it suddenly become violent? And my suspicion is, my suspicion is that Paul said something like he said, says in 1 Corinthians, something like this. That before the entire Sanhedrin, he said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more to 500 brothers at once, last of all, to an untimely board, he also appeared to me. That is, before the completion of human history, Christ has already been resurrected. See, the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. At the end of time, when Messiah will come, Paul says uh, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Pharisees, you might be a little bit more wrong, but ultimately, you're both wrong. (laughs) And Boom! You see, uh, you know, the, suddenly, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> suddenly, Paul is bringing unity uh, ultimately to the Sanhedrin because rather than beating each other up over this old fight, 
they grab Paul and they want to tear him limb from limb. And then the scene shifts one last time. Verse 11. And we're back in Paul's cell at the Roman barracks. According to Luke, Paul once again has been close to being torn apart. And who shows up? If you have, uh, have one of those old red-letter Bibles, <laughs> it's Jesus. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ shows up. And, and to a man, to Paul, who's probably weak, who is shaky at this point, Jesus is strong and comes in here. You can't miss this. He comes in here with an imperative. Take courage. Take courage. Stay strong. Persevere. Now, again, I'm not saying that Paul's calling is your calling. It wasn't every follower of Jesus who was hauled before the Sanhedrin on that day. It was Paul alone. He was the only one. Uh, presumably that evening, other Christians in town, in Jerusalem, are asleep in their beds and everything's okay. Paul gets brought there. Uh, Paul is something like the quarterback, right? If you can knock out the other guy starting quarterback, you can win the game. But, but, but confidence and assurance here for Paul comes when our Lord Jesus says this does apply to us, it's about me, it's not about you. It's about me, it's not about you. Do you see that? Jesus does not ask about Paul's comfort, much as we might like for him to do. Uh, Jesus does not say, Paul, I need a close look at your wounds. He doesn't tell Paul when he's going to be released. He doesn't even tell Paul um, uh, about a promise of his release. That's not to say that Jesus doesn't care. Doesn't, you know, we, we, we have descriptions of our Lord as being gentle. But he gives Paul assurance by telling him that this isn't about him. He isn't being persecuted for his faith, but he's being persecuted because his faith is in Jesus Christ. He's saying, Paul, the, the only reason that you're here is because this is about me. Now, again, New David translation here. I suspect that Paul must have been thinking right back to his very first meeting with his Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Paul had been, you know, he, he may not have had his fingerprints on the scourge, but he would have no problem with any follower of Jesus being scourged, being put into prison, being stoned on that particular day. Paul, you know this is what happens to followers of me. You've been on the other side of it. You've been basically a scourge orderer. You know this isn't about you. It's always about me for you. They're persecuting me. And it's, 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 by the way, Jesus does give Paul assurance here about his future. He says, you must testify about me in Rome. Paul's going to need to remember that over the next two years as he's in chains in Jerusalem, uh, because, uh, you know, he, it, Jesus isn't, isn't promising a pleasant journey to Rome. He, he's not even uh, promising that Paul's ever going to be out of chains. He's essentially, he's not. But, but someday you are going to get to Rome. Someday you're going to get there, and there you're going to be able to testify about me too. One of the ironies about the Christian life 
is this. Courage comes when you're in trials, when you're confronted with trials, comes by looking away from yourself and looking to someone else. I think this is so different from the world. Read, read books on courage. Watch, watch movies on courage. Um, read self-help books for, for low self-esteem. They're all about finding the courage in yourself. Summing it up within yourself. You can't depend on the rest of the world. You've got to find it within yourself. The gospel says you become stronger when you look not at yourself and you look at the one, ironically, who is willing to be weak and be scourged for you. It comes from Christ. Look, real courage is not looking that much at yourself. That's how it comes. Now, that is not, again, what the world will teach on these things. Uh, but, but, but this is how it works. This is how, how, how courage works. You get rid of fear by looking away from yourself. When the world says, look to yourself for strength, you know that never works because if you could banish fear by looking to yourself, you'd never need courage. But no courage is, comes from knowing who the risen Lord is for you. George Herbert, the famous poet, had a line where he says that death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel's made him a gardener. In other words, the worst that could be done to you, the worst that sin and death can do to you is to plant you right where you are, in the ground. But the gospel says that even when that happens, when you die, you come up as a beautiful flower. You come up as a mighty tree. You're just a seed and death plants you where you are, Herbert says. And that's when you finally realize that, 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 you're, you're, that who you're meant to be. When, when you, you, you pass through death on it, and, and, and because you're united with Christ, he is remaking you. He's making you new. He is giving you your, 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 your redemption body. He has changed you. You've been sanctified. You come up out of that because you're united to Christ. You're resurrected with Christ. You're new in Christ. You share the same name with Christ. You are in Christ. You're a new creation. And that new creation starting even now so that when you're in, in trials, you look at this as, yeah, I'm being buried anew in this trial. <laughs> right? But somehow, even in trial, as I trust in Jesus for me, even, e- e- even when bad things are happening to me, this is God's opportunity to do something new with me, remake me, make me who I'm supposed to be. Tim Keller says that Christianity is the only religion that even claims that our God has the attribute of courage. And then gives you that, the old way the old systematic theologians used to say, it's a communicable attribute. That Jesus has courage and one of the, he can't give you all his attributes. He can't, he's not going to just give you the same holiness. That, that holiness that he gives you is a gift. You just don't snap your fingers and you walk around as some holy person. Don't be telling your spouses, I'm holy. <laughs> They'll show you you're not. But one of the communicable attributes that, that the Lord does is we can have courage as he has courage. And when, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't look to himself, but he looked to the Father for courage. 
and said, Lord, I'd love it if you took this cup of wrath away from me right now. In my flesh, in my human flesh, I'd love it if you did that. But I'm not going to look to me right now. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to look to you, your will for me, your will be done. And we can have that same attribute such that Jesus is saying to Paul, hold on to me, look to me. I pass through in my resurrection, take my resurrection power. What's true of me, Paul, Jesus is saying, becomes true of you. You're the Lord's and he will never let you go. Have that courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.